MSW Media. Hi, Daily Beans listeners. Today's show is brought to you by my favorite daily nutritional drink, Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. We thank them for their support. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Friday, May 6th, 2022. Today... Trump wanted to bomb Mexico. Biden appoints Karine Jean-Pierre to replace Jen Psaki as press secretary. Chief Justice John Roberts continues to respond to the Roe draft decision leak, but not its contents. And Paul Gosar sucks. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. Paul Gosar sucks, Dana. Paul Gosar does suck. Mm-hmm. And if anyone wants to send in a, what is Paul Gosar? Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> no. <laughs> because we're not going to be able to read him on air. We're you not. Tell us why. Yeah. But, you know, other than that, please keep. Yeah, because then it, it, it gets all homophobic y. We don't want to do that. Yeah. No Madison Cawthorn videos, please. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I've not. Uh, that'll, that'll, that'll keep you gay. Well, him and me. <laughs> Actually, apparently, I don't know if he's gay. Let's just move on. Yeah, <laughs> he's definitely a hypocrite. Let's just yes, say that. Yes, that's he's definitely a hypocrite. Um, he's your cousin. I just keep thinking of Mean Girls. It's just locker room talk. What? We're just joking around. That's just how we joke around. That's right. Okay, so today is a pretty big show. I had to redo a script. I had to redo the script last minute because we found out Trump wanted to bomb Mexico. Okay. And so we're going to talk about that. Also, do not buy Mark Esper's book. And I'm going to be talking later in the show with the host of the Accidental Activist podcast, Peabody Award winner and UN Goodwill Ambassador, Aisha Sasse. And we're going to talk about Ukraine refugee funding. And she was there on the ground at a refugee center in Poland. Very, very amazing work. An incredible, incredible person. I was honored to speak to her. And Biden, as I said, has appointed Karine Jean-Pierre to replace Jen Psaki. She was the deputy White House press secretary. Now she's going to be the full on press secretary. She will be the first black woman and the first openly LGBTQ plus person to serve in that position. So congratulations. I'm very excited. Indeed. I I actually look forward to it. I, I, I know that those are big shoes to fill, but I think she's going to be just fine. Oh, yeah. And and uh, Ducey today from Fox News in the press room said, you know, we're going to miss you. And she's like, are you? Jen Psaki <laughs> said, are you? <laughs> she's so good. And they all got a good laugh out of it. But, you know, no. Yeah. I am definitely going to miss her dunking on him, though I'm sure Karine Jean-Pierre will also be very good at dunking on him. Okay. With that out of the way, we have a lot of news to get to. I can't even believe this first story. Let's hit the hot notes. <laughs> Hot notes. Former President Donald J. Trump in 2020 asked Mark Esper, his defense secretary, about the possibility of launching missiles into Mexico to destroy the drug labs and wipe out the cartels, maintaining that the United States involvement in a strike against its southern neighbor could be kept a secret. They would never know it was us. And that's what Esper recounts in his upcoming memoir that no one should buy. Pressed on his view of Mr. Trump, Esper, who strained throughout the book to be fair to the man who fired him, while also calling out his increasingly erratic behavior after his first impeachment trial, ended in February of 2020, of course, said carefully but bluntly, he's an unprincipled person who, given his self-interest, should not be in the position of public service. But we will also find out later that Esper didn't think that the 25th Amendment should apply to him. So, okay. Mm hmm. Esper describes an administration overtaken by concerns about Trump's reelection campaign with every decision tethered to that objective. Of course, that was obvious. Thanks for that, Sherlock. He writes that he could have resigned and weighed the idea several times, but he believed the president was surrounded by so many yes men and people whispering dangerous ideas to him that a loyalist would have been put in Esper's place. Like a loyalist who wouldn't tell Congress that the president wanted to bomb Mexico, that kind of... Yeah. The real act of service, he decided, was staying in his post to ensure that nothing crazy that he Trump did got anywhere and no one heard about. Oh, my God. Actually, it says 
He was staying at his post to ensure such things did not come to pass. Okay, thanks. One such idea emerged from Mr. Trump, who was unhappy about the constant flow of drugs across the southern border, I guess because he doesn't want to have to pay to put Junior in rehab. Or himself. (laughs) During the summer of 2020, Trump asked Esper at least twice, at least twice, if they could bomb Mexico, shoot missiles into Mexico to destroy the drug labs. When Esper raised various objections, (laughs) Mr. Trump said, we could just shoot some Patriot missiles, take out the labs quietly, quietly shoot some missiles and take out the... No one would know it was us. No. (laughs) I just, I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we'll just we'll tape a china didn't he try and do this on another with the planes we'll just put a chinese uh, logo yeah. uh, and we'll just uh we'll shoot over our missiles and I'm, I'm sure they won't be able to track the trajectory we'll just put a chinese logo on them because they're looking at the logos on the planes yeah. <laughs> uh so among trump's other desires was to put ten thousand active duty troops military troops on the streets of washington on june 1st 2020 after large protests against the murder of George Floyd emerged. Trump asked Esper about the demonstrators and said, can't you just shoot them? Esper describes one episode nearly a month earlier during which Trump, whose reelection prospects were reshaped by his repeated bungling of the response to COVID, behaved so erratically at a May 9th meeting about China with the Joint Chiefs of Staff that one officer grew alarmed. The unidentified officer confided in Esper months later that the meeting led him to research the 25th Amendment under which the vice president and members of the cabinet can remove a president from office to see what was required and under what circumstances it might be used. So a senior official in the Joint Chiefs wanted to look at the 25th Amendment because of the China situation. Esper writes, he never believed Mr. Trump's conduct rose to the level of needing to invoke the 25th Amendment. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. No, bombing Mexico now and it's cool erratic behavior with the Joint Chiefs that made China wonder if they were going to get nuked. Yeah, no, some, some light treason. Totally cool. It's totally, <laughs> totally legal and totally cool. Now, he recounts also that Stephen Miller proposed sending 250,000 troops to the southern border, claiming that a large caravan of migrants was en route. Esper said uh, the U.S. Armed Forces doesn't have 250,000 people in it <laughs> uh, for such nonsense. First of all, there aren't even. <sighs> I love you this episode. You're exasperated already. I don't even I can't, I wasn't going to include this story. I was going to hold this story till Monday. And I was like, I can't. He wanted, to, he wanted to bomb Mexico. Here's another idea from Stephen Miller in October 2019. After members of the national security team assembled in the sit room, the situation room to watch a feed of the raid that killed Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And Stephen Miller proposed securing Mr. al-Baghdadi's head, dipping it in pig's blood, and parading it around to warn other terrorists. And Esper said, that would be a war crime. <laughs> to, oh my God. Uh, to Stephen Miller. Not, not what the fuck is wrong with you. But, you know, sorry, that would be a war crime. I, you know, we got to get technical about, wow. Esper also viewed Mark Meadows as a huge problem for the administration and the national security team in particular. Meadows often threw the president's name around when barking orders, but Esper makes clear that he often was not certain whether Meadows was communicating what Trump wanted or what Meadows wanted. And he also writes about repeated clashes with Robert O'Brien, that's Trump's national security advisor in the final year, describing Mr. O'Brien as advocating a bellicose approach to Iran without considering the potential fallout. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Nobody buy this book. Why? Please. Would you hold these secrets close to your chest until you needed to sell a book? Because you're a jackass. You. Yep. We're just going to talk over each other's curse is today. Curse words today. That's all we're going to do. And now I get to tell you more about Madison Cawthorn. Mm. Wow. Man, I wish Democrats went after Republicans like Republicans go after Republicans, because holy shit. That's Russian-ass shit, dude. That is... And Pete Strzok was like, you know, we should revisit that whole meta guy in a casino in Russia that's illegal situation about how he met his wife. Because if his wife was the one making those videos, 
That Someone is, was holding the camera. That is Russian-ass compromat, but given to the Republicans. Because right? Russians don't release that shit. They hold it oh, over no. you. Right? Yeah. So. All right. So everyone overpaying a staff member hardly seems like Madison Cawthorn's biggest scandal these days, as AG and I just alluded to. But a Daily Beast investigation into Cawthorn's compensation for his chief of staff reveals cut-and-dried ethics violation. One of his office appears to have tried and failed to skirt. They tried to cover this. Now, congressional pay data shows that North Carolina Republican paid his chief of staff, Blake Harp. Now, we've heard a lot about Blake. $131,000 and someone else, $131,278 in 2021. That actually ranks Harp at the low end of compensation for chiefs of staff in Congress. But why he was paid that specific amount could be highly relevant. House ethics rules stipulate that senior congressional staff can only earn $29,595 in outside income each year. Now, according to filings with the Federal Elections Commission, Cawthorn's campaign paid Harper combined $73,237 in direct payments and payments to his LLC EMP strategies. That outside limit, however, only applies to aides who qualify as, quote, senior staff. Cawthorn's office appears to have tried to avoid triggering that specific classification. The office's congressional expense reports show that Hart made about $1,500 less than the annual threshold that would qualify him as senior staff. But the ethics rules don't calculate senior pay at an annual rate. The pay rate is calculated per every 90-day period, and that's where they slipped up. Math. Har- yeah, Foiled they again. slipped up at math. <laughs> that's why math. you need to keep math books in places like Florida and other and other states paying harp at a senior rate in the last quarter at 2021. So let me repeat that part. The ethics rules didn't they didn't calculate senior paid an annual rate because the rate is calculated per every 90 day period and that's where they went wrong. They were paying harp at a senior rate in the last quarter. That's where this flag went up. Oops. Cawthorn's communications director, Luke Ball, he acknowledged that the office believed harp didn't qualify as senior staff just didn't qualify as senior staff. Mm-hmm. And this is a quote. Mr. Harp's congressional salary is below the House's threshold for the outside limitations to be applied. No, it's That's not. What... <laughs> no, it's not. That's what Ball said. His last name is Ball. It's really hard not to giggle during this story. I know. The Daily Beast asserted, this is the continuation of that quote, the Daily Beast asserted otherwise, but refused to provide our office the information they alleged was at the center of their request. And uh, congressional pay is public information, by the way, and we did break down the rules, okay? so <laughs> They just didn't understand the math. Exactly. The reply from Cawthorn's office is revealing in a number of ways. For one, it confirms that staff believed HARP wasn't subject to outside income limitations, okay? For another, it doesn't dispute that HARP made more than what would be allowable on the chief of staff, the most senior staffer in the office, was actually considered senior staff. So that's a problem there. The team also appears to have gone out of its way to try and blur the recipient of some payments, creating a shell LLC to obscure that HARP was the one getting the money. Now, that company has also received tens of thousands of dollars from a pack belonging to Harp's mother. All experts consulted for this report said there's strong evidence of intent. You think? According to corporate filings, the Texas Secretary of State, Hart created EMP Strategies last April, just weeks before his campaign salary would have cracked the ceiling. Oh, Oh, where should I put this extra money? Under my mattress? No. That's where we shoot our videos. Furthermore, the Cawthorn <laughs> campaign isn't his only consulting client. I want to know what's under Harp's mattress. Seriously? <laughs> uh, we don't need a black light. We just need some Febreze and some rubber gloves. Furthermore, the Cawthorn campaign isn't the only consulting client. So is his mom. And she's a former congressional candidate. FEC records show that EMP Strategies has received tens of thousands of dollars from his mom's old campaign committee which she converted to a pack last October. Now, there's more to the story, AG. The attempt to keep Harp's salary under the limit also would have allowed him to duck the federal requirement that he report stock trades. Uh And because he appears to have qualified as senior staff at that last minute, Harp's 2021 salary would also be, it would also require him to file a disclosure report this year, accounting for his 2021 finances. Oops. Yep, the violation strongly suggests that the Office of Congressional Ethics are going to open an investigation. 
Okay. Math. Who knew? Who knew it could be so important? Uh, Me. All right. Next up, Chief Justice John Roberts said Thursday that the leak of a draft opinion that would strike down Roe v. Wade is, quote, absolutely appalling. Not the draft. The leak of the draft is absolutely appalling and stressed that he hopes one bad apple would not change people's perception of the nation's highest court and workforce. Uh, John, uh, our opinion of the court isn't going to be shaped by who leaked the draft. Our opinion of the court is shaped by the draft. In his first public appearance since the leak on Monday, Roberts also said if the person or people behind the leak think it will affect the work of the Supreme Court, they're foolish. Uh huh. Roberts was speaking at a meeting of lawyers and judges at the 11th Circuit Judicial Conference while the court is also on a brief recess. The justices will meet together again during a closed door conference in Washington on May 12th. Yeah, good luck. Will it be closed door? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they have 30 foot fences up around the Supreme Court building, right? Oh, my God. I'm very afraid of women right now and people that care about women's reproductive health and trans male reproductive Mm -hmm. health Mm -hmm. and non-binary reproductive health. Keep it going. Yes. Roberts's comments come as demonstrations on both sides of the issue have erupted. Peaceful demonstrations, by the way, across the country and supporters of abortion rights fear that the states and large swaths in the South and the Midwest are prepared to bar the procedure when the court issues a final decision by early July. Roberts didn't want to completely overturn Roe, meaning he would have dissented from part of the opinion, according to sources, likely with the court's three liberals. Okay. The court has confirmed the authenticity of the draft opinion, but stressed that it was not final and did not reflect the final position of any member of the court. (laughs) Alito wrote it. Fuck off. I know. In a statement, Roberts called the leak an egregious breach and a betrayal of the confidence of the court. And he launched an investigation into the source of the leak, but no investigation. No investigation into Thomas. Exactly. Into, yeah, the coup wife lady or 4,500 tips about Kavanaugh sexual assaults. None of lying to Congress about stare decisis. No one, no need for those investigations. Oh, just, no. Just this one. Oh, and I get to, for him not to understand why it, the public is furious. Unbelievable. Yeah, they're going to blame the leak on why we hate the Supreme Court. They're going right. to say it's, it's because of that leak, the egregious, appalling leak. That's why America is dissatisfied with the court. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. We're going to give you one more story before we move on. Rep. Paul Gozer. Gosar? Gosar. Gosar of the Hill people. Gosar of the Hill people. Boasts he's been relentless, relentless AG, in seeking to restore fiscal responsibility and common sense when it comes to the bloated federal government. Mm -hmm. Speaking of bloated, this is what he said. I will continue to cut wasteful federal spending wherever I can. And that was from the Arizona Republican. In his official website, he went on to say the American people and taxpayers deserve nothing less. However... Gosar doesn't seem to practice what he preaches. Shocking. What? I know. A review conducted by the nonpartisan watchdog Moonlight Foundation of the self-described fiscal conservatives spending shows he spent more taxpayer dollars on travel than any other member of the House over the past five years. <laughs> that includes Nunez going to Vienna to talk that's to Kurtosh, just a so you know. lot. <laughs> Yeah, that's an unusual amount of money spent by a rank-and-file member who has served in the minority for part of that time and has built a scant record of legislative accomplishments, meaning he hasn't done shit, but he sure is spending a lot of money. That's what that meant. Hmm. The analysis of his spending raises serious questions about the nature of the expenses since congressional rules do not require lawmakers to disclose anything more than the most basic of details, which are the amount, the date, and the expenses category. Gosar's office denies misusing tax dollars at all. Hmm. Yeah. And since 2019, Gosar has spent nearly $1 million in taxpayer, $1 million in taxpayer dollars on travel, the most in the entire 435 member house. That's a lot of people. And he's had traveled to events in Florida, Colorado, Texas, and Europe, among other places. And that's according to congressional records. Members in neighboring Arizona districts that are roughly the same size, they spent about 40% of that amount in that time frame. The closest spenders to Gosar were the two delegates from Guam who served over the past five years and whose district is nearly 8,000 miles from the Washington, or about four times the distance from the capital to Phoenix, yet they still managed to incur roughly $65,000 less than Gosar in their travel expenses paid for U.S. taxpayers over the past five years. House ethics rules, I'm not even drinking yet, 
<laughs> say lawmakers could be held personally liable for misusing funds that their taxpayers funded allowance may quote not be used to pay for any expenses to activities or events that are primarily social in nature personal expenses campaign or political expenses or house committee expenses lawmakers and political candidates are required to use their campaign money raised from donors or their personal funds to pay for their political travel that's it Yet an examination of Gosar's expenses shows that his campaign finance expenses for travel over the past five years, they pale in comparison to what he has billed taxpayers. And this is a quote, no one has spent more taxpayer money on travel in the last five years than Representative Paul Gosar. That was from Karen Gall, executive director of the Moonlight Foundation. She went on to say after he won his second congressional race, his office's travel budget started to skyrocket with budget busting charges on lodges car rentals, and transportation. Mm. I would be fucking pissed if I was one of his constituents. Yeah, especially if, you know, the whole goal is small government and not to exactly waste taxpayer dollars. All right, we will be back with UN Goodwill Ambassador and host of the Accidental Activist podcast, Aisha Sisay. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Beans. Today's show is brought to you by Athletic Greens, specializing in convenient daily nutrition. And it's so convenient. It was such an easy habit for me to pick up and it's delicious and it fills the gaps in my diet and my nutrition because nowadays eating well and getting the nutrients can be very difficult. I have a very hectic schedule. I intermittently fast. I'm paleo. I'm perimenopausal. So I have huge gaps in my nutrition. And that is why I love Athletic Greens. Just one scoop of AG1 provides complete daily nutrition for me. AG1 contains multivitamins, multiminerals, a probiotic, a green superfood blend, 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food ingredients in all. Taking AG1 first thing in the morning makes me feel energized and productive throughout the day. Do it right before the gym and it's delicious. And it takes the place of multiple pills and supplements. I had a cabinet full of supplements and superfoods and scoops and proteins and probiotics. And now it's just one delicious scoop of AG1. It provides a complete nutrition Um, that's easely absorbed into the body. Uh, It fits a variety of lifestyles too. Keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free. It's got less than one gram of sugar, zero GMOs, zero chemicals, zero artificial ingredients, and it tastes amazing. And they keep up with the science. They keep up with the research and they upgrade and update as the research becomes available. 53 improvements in the last decade and counting. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D, and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Those travel packs are amazing. They come in handy so much. And that's if you visit athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans to take control of your health, fill the gaps in your nutrition, and give delicious AG1 a try. You'll be glad you did. Everybody, welcome back. I am honored to be joined today by the host of the Accidental Activist podcast, Peabody Award winner, UN Goodwill Ambassador. Please welcome Aisha Sisay. Aisha, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. And the first thing I want to ask you about is your recent trip to Poland with world leaders for the Stand Up for Ukraine Summit. Can you talk a little bit about that summit and about that meeting? Yeah, sure. Um, This was um, a summit that was uh, convened by the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, and the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, in partnership with Global Citizen, uh, the advocacy organization that we all know, perhaps most famously for throwing those big concerts in Central Park every summer. And it really was an opportunity to bring together world leaders and also um, refugees from Ukraine who happened to be in Poland to have this event there in Warsaw to discuss the needs of those displaced and how the international community needs to stand up for Ukraine. So it was an amazing event. And while there, you visited a refugee center. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw, the conditions at the refugee center? Yeah, you know, that was one of the things I, you know, as as a journalist, I was with CNN for 13 years as an anchor and correspondent. And one of the things that I've learned in that time from sitting behind the anchor desk is, you think and you know a story because you've read it in a paper and you've, you know, if you're sitting behind the desk, you've read the words out loud to the public, but it hits differently when you're on the ground and you actually engage with those at the center of the story. And Ukraine's a story that I've been following closely from here in the States. So to go to the refugee center, to see 
the, the rooms full of toys for children to see how in this particular refugee center, one of the things, it's an office block there in Warsaw that has been converted into a refugee center. And one of the beautiful things about it is that each family has their own room, giving them privacy and a sense of dignity as opposed to what we often see with these spaces, everybody living together in a crowded, cramped space. So to see that and to see the kitchens that they have to make their own food and to actually go a floor up and see all the preparations for what they expect to be an influx of more refugees was just really... You know, it it was it, it was shocking. I mean, the first sight that I saw when I came out of the elevators was just this parade of strollers, mm. empty strollers, just right there. And you think about it because, again, as we all know, Ukraine, all the fighting age men are still in Ukraine. So it's just the women and children who are, by and large, out of the country. It was it was really it was touching. It was not just touching; it was just disturbing. And this was uh, because I know that we have all seen a famous image of uh, a line of strollers at the train station in Poland awaiting mm-hmm. mothers who are fleeing. And the, yeah, those I can't imagine the difference of, uh, you know, just seeing it uh, on social media or, or hearing it on the news and actually being there. This refugee center was in Warsaw. I know Poland. There's just been an influx of I mean, millions of refugees. Yeah. And what sort of uh, work is happening? with providing resources because my understanding is is that that some of these surrounding countries are not like angrily overwhelmed but overwhelmed with refugees working and doing their best to be able to provide enough resources and room and and assistance what what's going on behind the scenes with regards to providing those resources and with like you said expecting even more yeah i mean so Poland has the largest influx of refugees, has taken in the most number of, of Ukrainians from any of the surrounding countries. So let's start there. I believe it's over 2 million that have, have made their way to Poland. So for, for, the, for, for Polish people, it is overwhelming. I mean, it's just a sheer number of numbers, right? It is completely changing the, the social fabric and having these people who are coming in who need accommodation, food, you know, medical assistance, and they come in with children. How do you integrate a new community that's coming into a society? They need help. And, you know, the summit that I, I was I was hosting there with Trudeau and von der Leyen also had the Polish president present, um, Andrzej Duda. And, um, you know, the, the pledges that were made by um, government and, and private sector amounted to $10.1 billion. No, 10.1 billion euros, I think. Um, and I think it was like 9.1 billion dollars and essentially that money is going to be distributed to governments to support displaced communities and to really you know affect those who are hosting um these these people who have fled for their lives with most of their belongings in one or two bags but i think you know all the governments in the region need assistance because none of these are wealthy governments so they all need assistance from the European Union. European Union, of course, is making accommodations to allow people to get paperwork expedited. And in this particular refugee center that I went to, the conversation is afoot as to how do you integrate the children into schools there in Warsaw? How do you start skills building training for these mothers who are going to need to find work so that they can support themselves? And so you know, it's not just about the short term, it's about the longer term picture, which this refugee center that I went to, the the founders are, are, are working on actively. Mm. And any of the packages that the United States is putting together, you know, in partnership with with our allies in NATO. But I'm, you know, I'm thinking specifically of this latest round of aid that's going over. Is any of that aid appropriated to these surrounding countries to help accommodate the refugees? My understanding of it, and, and I don't want to speak, I don't want to misspeak, but my understanding is that the aid, I think it was 800 million recently that was just announced by, by the US government, by President Biden. My understanding is most of that's going directly to Ukraine. And most of that, I, I believe, will, will, I'm sure some of it will be appropriated for, you know, a kind of humanitarian aid for those within the country. But I think most of that's going towards arms and to military reinfor- to reinforcing their military effort. 
against the Russians. That's that's my understanding. I don't know about direct engagement with you know Belarus and and countries you know in in the region. I think most of the announcements that have been made and that have been public facing and garnered attention have been direct aid to Ukraine on the part of the U.S. Hmm. And talking about some of these resources, working to integrate children into the schools, giving skills to the mothers so that they can you know, eventually find work. Is the feeling there that this move is mostly permanent or does it feel temporary? And do people think that they're going to head back to Ukraine? What's sort of the the feel, because I know that, uh, you know, I had read reports and, and I, you know, I don't want to misquote anything, but a lot of people were actually returning to Ukraine from yes. Poland. Yes. I mean, I've seen those reports as well, that more and more people want to go back to Ukraine. In fact, more and more people are refusing to go further into Europe because they think if they stay close by, there's a better chance that as and when the conflict eases or ends, they can get back quickly. And the other thing to remember is, again, and so it's two vantage points. For people who are Ukrainians who have left, they want to go back. They don't want this to be a permanent move. They've left husbands, brothers, grandfathers, their male relatives back in Ukraine. So most definitely that's that's their aim. And I would imagine for surrounding countries and communities that are welcoming, but also having to deal with the realities of, of, of a new cohort, I'd imagine that they too hope that they will be able to go back to their homes. But the question is, you know, for, as an outsider um, looking on, as, 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 as an onlooker, this, this conflict is in its second month now. And from what we can tell from here, Putin doesn't seem as if he is being in any way deterred or, you know, he had conversations with um, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, I think in the last 24, 48 hours, it didn't seem to yield much change in, in actions on the ground. So I think the signals at this stage from what we're seeing seem to suggest that this conflict is going to go on for much longer. Yeah. And a lot of people seem to want to compare the treatment of Ukrainian refugees with the treatment of Syrian or Yemeni or Afghani refugees, or even at the U.S. border, are asylum-seeking Ukrainian immigrants versus Latinx immigrants and asylum seekers from Southern Triangle, etc. But, uh, you know, a lot of folks seem to be upset that perhaps European Ukrainian refugees are being treated better than some other refugees, let's say. What would you say to that? I think I'm, in, I'm one of those people who compares them. I think I'm one of those people who sees a clear distinction in the treatment of Ukrainian refugees. Um, you know, even let's 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 even zoom in and say the difference between Ukrainians and people who have fled Ukraine, who are not Ukrainian, who have tried to move on. And there's a distinction in the way they've been treated and accepted by and welcomed and aided by the European Union. Yeah, let's focus on that just for a minute, because this is something that really disturbed me was the disparity of treatment of people fleeing Ukraine. Versus Ukrainians. Versus Ukrainians fleeing Ukraine. Talk about that, because I, I have read a lot of reports. I've been you know, seeing a lot of it. I haven't been on the ground seeing it. What is it like seeing it on the ground? Because that I was disturbed. I was disturbed by the and disparity. Disappointing, by the mind. We were all disappointed. I um, wrote an op-ed in The Washington Post about this um, a couple of weeks ago about the disparity in the treatment between Africans fleeing Ukraine, which are a large number who went to Ukraine to study because of the comparative cost. It's cheaper to, to, to study in a place like Ukraine. So I did a lot of um, a lot of reporting. I actually interviewed a fair number of students who made the journey out of Ukraine um, and who are now, you know, in Poland or um, in, in Hungary or Belarus. I don't want to misspeak, but they're, they're, they've left Ukraine now. And um, what I heard was so incredibly disturbing. First of all, just leaving Ukraine, stories about people being at, you know, this one woman told me about being at the train station and I write about this in the piece and being told by the train attendants that there was something wrong with their tickets and there was nothing wrong with their tickets and they'd been there long enough to be able to, to understand Ukraine and, and, and to get around because they're students. And, you know, not being able to get on, being pushed back to the back of the line, constantly trying to get on board buses, just poor treatment at the border. But then I, what I've learned is that once they got out of Ukraine, when they've approached the authorities in these countries, in this one case, this woman said to me, 
She's in Germany. She was speaking to an official about trying to restart her education. The person outlined all these provisions and assistances that are that that are being made available to students who have fled the conflict. And this person was saying, this young woman was saying, oh my God, this is great. Um, but I'm not Ukrainian. I am an African. And the person said, this official said, oh no, no, this is only for this is only for Ukrainians. This is only for people who have Ukrainian passports. So what we're now seeing is all these students who left Ukraine now don't know how they're going to continue their education. They're having no support. Universities are allowing, according to a couple of students I've spoken to, Ukrainians, they'll accept their qualifications to continue their education in universities, but they won't accept the qualifications of the Africans who left those same universities and want to continue. And I've heard this from more than one person. I've spoken to several people who have said this. And if you go online, there's a, there's a lot of um, people sharing their stories. So, yes, mm. just on that front, and it, it gets me, I just find it just, you know, I'm from Sierra Leone. You know, my family's originally from Sierra Leone, one of the poorest countries on earth, a country that had its own conflict, that saw thousands of people flee um, its own conflict. It's so disturbing to me to see the disparities in, in treatment. And I do think there is a distinction. I mean, just look at the difficulties with people getting out of Afghanistan, you know, after it fell to the Taliban. And look at how the red tape is falling, as it should for Ukrainians, but they should also fall for everybody else. Right. It shouldn't be as hard for Ukrainians as it is for everyone else. It should be as easy for everyone else as it is for Ukrainians. And that's what I was thinking when I was seeing what was happening here at our border. Why all of a sudden, you know, we part the Red Sea to to allow Ukrainians in, which, again, we should. But we should do that to everyone seeking asylum, every every refugee and every. And so that that's kind of what I I found to be uniquely disturbing about. And again, I feel like crises really expose these problems. I know it happened in covid during yes, COVID, the biases that we have, mm-hmm. it really lays them bare and it's shocking. <sighs> and it still shocks me. <laughs> yes. And so what, what is being done is as what can we do to to close that gap? You know, the one thing I will say is that social media allows those who sit at the center of their stories to, to, to share their stories. I think one of the things that I found disturbing about the unequal treatment of, you know, Black people and white people fleeing Ukraine to to boil it down to its most basic was that even news organizations basically maybe did a few days of coverage of the actual of the discrimination and the hardship that African students were facing. And then they shifted entirely and concentrated on Ukrainians fleeing Ukraine. And one thing that I've written about is what you're creating is a hierarchy of suffering and saying some people deserve help more than others. And what we need to do, and I'm thankful for social media and the spotlight it provides where you can hear directly from those who are affected, who can share their stories, and that others can amplify those stories and that, you know, it creates its own groundswell and momentum. Because one thing I'll say, uh, you know, from the work that I've done, you know, in the space of activism as a journalist, what I've learned is that a spotlight, a spotlight and momentum as in a chorus, a global chorus, does shame governments into doing better, you know? And so I believe in our collective voice. I believe in the collective bullhorn and what we can do when we can, when we put pressure and when we collectively say, you know, you know, this is wrong. I mean, look at the case of Austin Tice, right? The journalist who's been held in Syria. His parents have kept that story alive. It's been, it's remained in the public eye. They were at the White House Correspondents' Dinner the statement was made referencing their son being held captive in Syria. The president saw it and invited them to like, so keeping stories alive, mm-hmm. it can, it can have an impact. Yeah, absolutely. So amplifying stories, voices, where and how, and whenever you can, I have to tell you the Syria thing, the, it was in and out of the news when we mm-hmm. abandoned the Kurds in Syria, it was in and out of the news in t- 20 minutes. And I was like, absolutely. wait, you <laughs> like, Russia's coming in, taking over the bases, putting their flags in. And I was so angry. And now I can't escape 24-7 news cycle coverage of Of Ukraine. Ukraine. 
Absolutely. And what about Afghanistan? What has happened to the fact that girls can't go to school and everything's going to hell and there's the biggest humanitarian crisis and hunger crisis in Afghanistan? You know, mm-hmm. well, what about those stories, right? It is 24-7 Ukraine. You know, I won't get into my, my the news cycle. You and I probably have the same strong feelings. About <laughs> but that's part of the accidental activist. Tell us when that comes out, what you cover, because that is amplifying these stories and amplifying these voices and keeping the stories alive. And I think that, you know, I had just finished Wajah Ali's book mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. finding his voice and amplifying stories. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like very much into the storytelling aspect of journalism. And so talk a little bit about Accidental Activist and, and where people can listen and, and the types of topics that you discuss, because that is what I think that the core of this is, is to keep those stories alive. Absolutely. First, let me just say, Waja is, is an amazing, an amazing person. And I actually spent some time with him fairly recently and um, on a project. And I'm so pleased to, to hear that you're reading the book. I haven't read it. So Waja, if you're listening, I'm sorry, I'll get it. I did a whole I did a whole eight part series on it. Oh, fantastic. The MSW Book Club. It's truly an incredibly dark, amazing, funny, poignant book. And, and it's those stories, right? And so that's why Accidental Activist, I think it's, it's just so important. I love it. Um, so the accidental activist is born of the fact that, you know, I was a journalist at CNN and I got sucked into the story of the abduction of the Nigerian schoolgirls in 2014. And just to your point, it wasn't enough for me when the news cameras moved on to let the story go. Instead, I felt, and it comes from a very personal place of being a Black African woman with a platform, that I needed to use my voice to do more. I need to use my voice to keep the story alive and to also change the vantage point of the storytelling around it. Because I think that very often we have tapped into our internal biases where we think something shitty, misery out of Africa, ah, that's how it goes, right? And we just move on. And what I wanted to show with the book I wrote about the Chibok girls, that these were girls with hopes and dreams and families that loved them. And so I wrote a book and then that really gave birth to my activism accidentally. And so this podcast is about speaking to other people in the public eye who, through twists of fate, sudden sparks, decided that they were actually going to use their voices for good. And what I hope the podcast will achieve is that it will inspire people to think, huh, as I like to say, I can move from the sidelines to the front lines to make a difference. I I don't have to be born into... MLK's family or into the Gandhi family, or, you know, I don't have to be, it doesn't have to be something I've done or envisioned all my life. It can happen just like that, that I decide to make a difference. And so during the course of this, of the series, and it's, we've already started dropping episodes. And this past Friday, we dropped Margaret Cho. So I speak to Margaret Cho, Forrest Whitaker, um, Amanda Seals, Alyssa Milano, Jesse Williams, a whole host of people who are taking on issues from voting rights to, you know, um, Asian American hate, to um, uh, mental health, to body positivity, a whole range of issues. And it's really an opportunity, first of all, for you to hear these people in a very different way, talking about how their life stories in some ways tee them up for the pivot, even if they, they didn't know it at the time and what they're now doing and and how they feel they can have an impact. And what I do is I unpack, I stop periodically during the show and unpack lessons that I think people can apply. Oh, that's so brilliant. The accidental aspect is incredible. Just last week, I had Loma Muffla on who wrote Learning America. She set up the School for Refugee Children. Total accident. She took a wrong turn literally one day and ended up (laughs) in the school. And I have experienced that never, you know, never did I think one day I'd be where I am because I something accident, you know, something just happened. And so that kind of incredible sort of like fate, but also hard work and ending up in the right place is just always very, very interesting to me. And I think that those stories are incredible. Everybody check out the accidental activist. I'm so excited. Margaret Cho, you know, I love Margaret Cho. So, oh, she's she's amazing. She's so funny. And she talks about how the shooting in the Atlanta spas uh, some time ago uh, last year, I believe I've, I've lost track of time with the pandemic, to be completely honest. I don't know what day it is, but she talks about how that fear she felt as an Asian American woman 
she catalyzed that into an energy that she's using to speak out on the issue. And what I really want people to do is just understand their own power. I want them to understand that you have it within you to step up. And, and there's no barrier to entry. Start wherever you want to start. You can organize or you can write emails or you can amplify or you can fundraise or, you know, like there's no barrier to entry. And that's what I hope that these stories, which show people at different, uh, you know, at different places on the scale. Forrest Whitaker has an organization. Margaret Cho doesn't. She just uses her voice and her platform. And I want people to, to see that you can make a difference wherever you are. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was such amazing information. And to see that kind of stuff happening just firsthand, it just makes such a difference. And thank you for what you're doing. The work is so important. And, and I really appreciate your time today. Aisha say we will, I hope, reconnect and talk again soon, especially as this midterm approaches. <laughs> yes. Count me in. I will come and I will rage with you. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Talk soon. Take care. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hey, I'm Ben Micellis. I'm Brett Micellis. And I'm Jordy. And we are the hosts of the Midas Touch podcast, the top rated, top watched political podcast for pro-democracy content. Each week we do multiple episodes where we break down the political issues of the day here in the United States and abroad as we fight for democracy. Isn't that right, Brett? That's right, Ben. We've had conversations with some incredible guests like White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, Beto O'Rourke, DNC Chair Jamie Harrison, Glenn Kirshner, Mary Trump, celebrities like Deborah Messing, Alyssa Milano, Michael Rappaport, and more. So subscribe to the Midas Touch podcast wherever you get your podcast. That's the the Midas Touch, M-E-I-T-I-S-T-O-U-C-H podcast. Jordy, anything to add? Shout out to the Midas Mighty. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. And if you have any good news or corrections or confessions or anything you want to send, that that piece written by Cathay uh, yesterday was just absolutely amazing. Anything like that you want to send, whoopee stories, photos, anything, you know, pets in your area that are up for adoption, you can do so by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. First up, from Gimli, no pronouns given. I'd like to start by saying thank you. I've listened to not only the Beans cast, but I check in on many more from MSW Media. But this is my daily overview. It has helped me work through many times of anxiety over the last few years. Much appreciated. My good news, in the last few months, I have moved from Iowa, where I was a newspaper press operator, to Northern California, where I'm doing my best to start up my own woodworking business. Oh, that's awesome. I love building all kinds of tables, bookshelves, disc golf racks, and wood trophy displays. That's so cool. Since COVID, I've been able to write, still yet to finish recording, an album worth of music. I've performed live and now taking one more risk. Shows like yours with community endings like this have really helped me gain the confidence to give this a shot. Special thanks to my wonderful partner for being extremely supportive. That's amazing. Thank you for keeping me informed and sharing all the good news. Attaches my pet tax. I, Rudy, found Rudy behind work April 2020 in Iowa. Pretty sure while listening to this podcast, I've always wanted to send in pet tax, but Talking myself into it was another thing. Anyways, after two years together and nothing to do with my first time training skills, I have the most perfect puppy. No idea what breed he is, and I'm extremely curious about your thoughts. I'm spoiled by my first puppy, even if it took 35 years to show up under a tree. To help with your guesses, he's 64 pounds. Whoa. He's a lap dog who loves to disc golf, but isn't a fan of fetch. 
Tug is his favorite game, and Baby Carrots are his favorite meme. Baby Carrots and Tug sounds like a Newfoundland. Oh, man. He also looks a little bit like a great Mastiff. Yeah, like he's got some pit bull. Mastiff, blue healer. His chest is spotted. Yeah, or that could be Burmese mountain dog. It's blue healer. Maybe Portuguese water dog and chow. Australian shepherd. Oh, there's no answers. We don't know. I love when they do that to us. We're way into it, people. We're way into it. And then we're just going to have to wonder for the rest of our lives. Which means we were 100% correct. That's all that that means. Yes. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good on us. All right. Nice moving on. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I love wood furniture. So I, I have a couple of um, handmade pieces in my apartment from people. So good luck with that. And I hope that it turns out to be hugely successful. Anna Marie, pronouns she and her, dear leaders of the Leguminati. This is a variation of shit kids say, but it's more of a shit kids do with a bit of good news. And there's a background on this. My sisters and I lost our dad in 1974 to cancer caused by Agent Orange that he was exposed to while he was in the Navy during Vietnam when his ship, the U.S. Canberry, the USS Canberry was carrying the stuff and was hit, holy shit, by a torpedo causing the chemical to be spilled into many areas of the ship. Mm. All right, the good news is that my younger sister, a professional photographer, recently digitally scanned a treasure trove of negatives from our dad's camera. Ooh, some of which had never been printed and had never been seen. He wasn't in many of our childhood photos because he was behind the camera for the majority of them. Same. Right? The other day, my mom, sisters, and I were on a Zoom looking at the photos. All four of us burst out laughing when this one came up. It's a picture of our dad with me, which is on the left of this photo. And my older sister in the last year of his life, apparently our mom who was behind the camera had told big sister not to blink. So she dutifully held her eyes as wide open as she could. It was lovely to see pictures of my dad's face. I don't have a lot of memories of him otherwise. Shout out to my sister for bringing these photos to life after nearly half a century. Thank you all for everything you do. You know how important you are to all of us in the Beans community. (laughs) (laughs) Don't blink. Oh my God. And your dad is so handsome. He was such a looker. Look how cute. What an amazing photo. And Anne-Marie, you know, uh, my heart goes out to you. I also lost my dad to cancer caused by exposure to Agent Orange in Vietnam. Oh my God. I'm so sorry, both of you. I'm sure there's so many people out there that have that same story. My heart goes to you. Yeah, this is so great. And my dad had a beard and two daughters. Although I I don't know if I have a photo of me keeping my eyes open like that. I'm going to look though. Thank you for sharing that. What a cool treasure to find, you know, all those old photographs. Next up from anonymous pronouns, she and her. Just wanted to say thanks for all you do. I look forward to your podcast each morning as I start my day and you guys are the bomb diggity. Thank you. Bomb diggity, mo figgity. My good news. I'm leaving for my first trip to San Diego on Mother's Day. Any suggestions on where to go and who to see that week? Instead of my usual pet tax, I give you this picture of an army of frogs to see how many you can find. <laughs> I love this game. Oh my God, how many me too. Frogs. These are fun. This is my back porch in Florida. They keep my plants bug free, but startle me when they fall down and hit the deck. Sounds like a splat. Oh my Sending God. warm smiles your way. Have an awesome day. Let's count I the frogs. See. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Holy shit, that's a lot of frogs. I see nine so far. Maybe ten? There might be one sitting on the ledge of that wood piece on the top left corner. Yeah, I see ten, nine or ten, I think. Yeah, I, I got to ten. All right, let's see. Answer. Twelve frogs. Okay. I'm going right. to take your word for it. Yeah. That's amazing. And San oh, Diego? There's eleven. Uh, <laughs> I found eleven. Uh, there's so many amazing things to do here in, in San Diego. Yeah. It's beautiful right now. Uh, We haven't hit the May gray yet. So I hope you have a a wonderful time. I recommend going to the zoo and the wild animal park. Both amazing. Balboa Park is beautiful. And uh, as the Japanese Friendship Garden, the Koi Pond, just all just go see. Have lunch at the Prado in Balboa Park. You'll be out in the park next to the Japanese Friendship Garden. It's beautiful. It's warm. They have amazing food. That's what I would recommend. Probably. Got it. I Don't like do it, it on Mother's Day, though. They probably are booked up. Yeah. <laughs> AG's the pro on this, so. All right. This next one's from Yashu. It's Polish for Johnny. Pronounce he and him. Good morning, AGDG and company. I have some good news, but please bear with me. This may be all over the place since I've always had a hard time collecting my thoughts. 
Same, Mr. Same. I'm a longtime listener who wrote in on previous occasions, but the slow journey back to normal in the world of the arts. Mm. Well, I write in to say that I've been settling into my position as an assistant electrician at a major performing arts center. I took the job about six months ago, and it's definitely been a step outside my usual comfort zones. But overall, it's been a really positive experience. The nice bump in pay and increase in flexibility of my schedule certainly helps. Mm-hmm. I'm learning the finer details of the business, and it gives more of an opportunity to work on lighting design. That being said, if you ever decide to do a live show in New Jersey area, I'll forward you some more information of where I'm at. We do a lot of comedy specials for streaming networks and live podcasts as well. Nice. Also, if you don't mind, I'd like to share my mother-in-law's Etsy shop. We've got, Of course we don't mind. She doesn't have a lot listed currently because she mostly sells locally. She does a lot of hand-painted gourd birdhouses and tote bags, among other things. And that link will be in the show notes for everybody. Now for Pod Pet Tax, I'd like to share some photos of our menagerie, including Bedrock, our newest addition we adopted last fall. He's your standard issue tabby. He's a real sweetheart who loves belly scratches and just overall hanging out on the shoulders or laying with our staffy mix Indiana. Sadly, a week after we adopted him, one of our pups, our pity mix Kona, passes away for a sudden blood clot. Oh, at the age of 10. Mm. And finally, thank you for all you do. All of you have helped me keep my sanity over the years and an extra thank you for constantly advocating for taking care of your mental health. I've started seeing a therapist a few months ago and it's been helping me manage myself and my daily challenges. And I'm sorry, Yashu, there does not seem to be attached photos on our end. And so hopefully we can find those at some point and share them with our listeners. Yeah, and Yashu, that was very brilliantly put together and succinct and had a very logical flow to it. Indeed. And so the mother-in-law's Etsy shop, If I think if you search on Etsy for Rainbow Pride Gourd Birdhouse, you will find her. Yeah, that's helpful. Next up, anonymous pronouns he and him. Hello, Beans Queens. Just a light dog story for you in a dark week. Last weekend, I joined thousands of folks around the world documenting the diverse spring wildlife, plants, animals, bugs, etc. in cities around the world. City Nature Challenge. I was working with a group to document all the mushrooms in D.C. The app we used, iNaturalist, has an artificial intelligence feature that's really good at identifying organisms. Don't trust it to decide whether to eat the mushroom, though. (laughs) Last night, I decided to try the AI out on our dog, Bunbury, a golden doodle. The AI suggested the dog is first choice, but also recommended barn owl and Hericium americanum, a shaggy fungus. Hmm. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps because I didn't select any of the suggestions, the app came back today with suggestions of alpaca, polar bear, <laughs> domestic sheep, and guinea pig. <laughs> People in Germany always called him polar bear, always called him polar bear when his hair was long. So maybe the AI isn't so bad. Anyway, chins up. Let's push through these last roadblocks before liberal secular minority as majority Americans dominate U.S. politics in the next decade and never go back. Included is the original photo of my dog, as well as a stock photo of the mushroom he impersonated. Oh, my God. (laughs) This dog is so freaking cute. And there's the mushroom. <laughs> and that is so funny. Also, that's kind of a really beautiful mushroom. That is a really beautiful fungus. But yeah, I can see how the AI might confuse the dog for that mushroom. That is hilarious. That entire thing is wonderful. So Dana, last night I was sitting out on my porch and I think it was a mockingbird. Okay. Whatever the bird is that sings at night that does all different kinds of, you know, sounds. Woo-woo, woo-woo, uh-huh. ew, ew, you know, just... <laughs> Wasn't a car alarm, though. This was definitely nope. a bird. Yep. It was a bird. And so I recorded him for, like, a minute, because he was loud, and he seemed really angry. <laughs> and he was making all kinds of different sounds. And then when I was playing the recording back for myself, he started... He started repeating himself. Oh. So, like, on the recording, it would go, ooh, 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 ooh. And then he would go, ooh, 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 And then the recording would go, ew, ew. And he would go, ew. And it would go back and forth like that for the entire minute. It sounds like an African gray parrot. So then I pull out my laptop so I can record because, like, you know, I want to play on the phone. Right. And get the response from the bird and record the entire thing. But I had my phone. I couldn't use my phone. So I got my laptop and recorded video of the recording and the bird responding to the recording. I've posted it on Facebook. My name's Allison Gill on Facebook. It's bananas. Uh, you should check that out. That's awesome. I have to go check it out. It was, it was hilarious. I'm like, you're a fucking dick, dude. He's like yelling at himself, like they were like he was arguing. 
No, no. It was so funny. No, it's funny. And I have a lot of free time at night sometimes. <laughs> anyway, thank you for sending all of these in. These are amazing. If you have anything else you want to send in to us, whatever it is, you can do it by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. Dana, do you have any final words before we get out of here for the weekend? Um, no, no final words. I, I will, I'll be back with you um, next week and I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. I know. I don't know what the hell's going on. Did I say final words again instead of final thoughts? Yeah. Do you have any last words, Dana? I have nothing. I have nothing for you. <laughs> I have no final anything because I'm not done here, people. I'm not I'm just getting started. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love you, dude. Love all right. Man. Everybody, we'll be back on Monday. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Oh, one quick interjection. There will be no MSW Book Club this weekend. We're going to pick up the following week. And I believe, I believe, Dana, Burn the Page is going to be our book. Ooh, nice. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, and again, what, where did I leave out? Take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. Uh, my name's, uh, what is it? Oh, oh, oh. And vote. See, here's today. This is what today is like. We started this entire podcast has been so fun. We've been on, we've been sharp, and then the end came and everything went to pot. I just unraveled it just unraveled at the very end. That's all right, because you know what? That's okay. But please vote blue over Q. <laughs> Do that. And by the way, who are you? I'm AG. Oh, I'm DG. And what's this? Them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane, with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>